Hello and welcome to Information Operation. I just released a book called Paying the Price, The Untold Story of the Iranian Resistance. And I thought of someone who really has a close connection to the MEK, which is Laura Logan, the infamous uh, investigative journalist who is releasing a series called Behind the Rest of the Story. And she's about halfway through that. So we're gonna talk a little bit about that. But Laura, Laura really has some interesting insights into the MEK and how it was founded and, uh, and really how they've been persecuted over the last several decades by the U.S. government and the West, including the mullahs. The book is called Paying the Price, The Untold Story of the Iranian Resistance. It is a story of passion, of trauma, of uh, really persistence and standing up for freedom over the long term. It's available anywhere. Books are sold. You can go to historyofbooks.com or send me an email on ltodwood.com and I'll send you a signed copy. So I really hope you enjoy the book and also the interview. And now let's get to the show. Thank you. It is necessary to investigate before legislating. But the line between investigating and persecuting is a very fine one. The investigators tell us it seems the suspect was going to pass them, then turned and fired. Laura, what you're seeing behind me is one of multiple locations. Arise to support the impeachment of President Donald J. Trump. And I'm about to talk to him about allegations that he was involved with prostitutes in Moscow and that the Russians taped it and have leverage over him. So we're honored to have award-winning journalist Laura Logan with us today. And I want to talk about several things. One, the Iranian situation and its impact on the Middle East and her knowledge of the resistance movement there. But Laura, first tell us about your series. You're about halfway through it now, right? Um, yes, it doesn't feel like it because meeting these weekly deadlines is uh, brutal. But um, we have, we've covered you know, a number of stories around January 6th. Mm -hmm. um, it's such a vast topic. So many people have been affected that you never get to everybody. And that's yeah. frustrating. But our latest episode um, that takes a closer look at Ray Epps is one of uh, four or five episodes that are coming out looking at undercovers and informants and, or, you know, potential provocateurs in the crowd. And this one has, I mean, it's, it's getting close to five million views in uh, five days. So there's a lot of interest in this. Yeah, I was going to ask you, what's the feedback? Are you getting any feedback from, uh, you know, federal officials or just from uh, your people? I'm, I'm not top of the of the pops with federal officials, Todd. Right, right. They don't, um, they don't, you know, go out of their way to speak to me. We approach them all the time. Um, we do manage, you know, there are good people there and we manage to get people to uh, talk to us from time to time. But typically they hide behind um the statement that, you know, they'll comment on January 6th cases once all of them are over, not just individual cases. So you don't get very far. But right. I tell you what, the biggest feedback with the show has been that um, people are uh, grateful for a quality production um, that does real investigative journalism. You know, there's mm -hmm. a, there are a lot of podcasts, there are a lot of opinion shows out there, um, but really the... Um, you know, doing old fashioned journalism in the style of 60 Minutes, the way I did it for many years at CBS, 
um, is something that is very difficult to do. It's very expensive and people don't really want to pay for it. Um, but, but the, but the reaction, the response that we've gotten has shown that people are desperate for it. So it's hard to find that balance. We don't have a network behind us. We don't have the resources of a massive company. You know, we just mm -hmm. have a few committed people who are doing everything they can. Um, and, you know, no doubt, uh, you know, no one bets a thousand, right? So I'm just waiting for the hammer to fall, but we are doing our very best. Uh, well, uh, we will continue to post out your uh, series on CDM. So I wanted to talk to you because um, you, you and I met at an event a couple of years ago in Tampa, I believe. And I asked you about what your thoughts were on the Mujahideen Caulk or the Iranian resistance inside Iran. And I just had just released a book on the subject and you were kind enough to do a blurb on the back. But I was curious, what is your how did you get involved with the MEK and, and what is your what are your general thoughts about them? Well, I first met members of the MEK in Baghdad when I was living in Iraq for five years from 2003 to 2008. Mm -hmm. And um, at that time, uh, they had been given refuge inside Iraq by Saddam Hussein. They were pretty much prisoners mm -hmm. inside um, a camp. Uh, I believe it was outside of Diyala, north of Baghdad. And when I say prisoners, you know, they didn't have absolute freedom of movement. There were um, exceptions to that where leaders or, you know, various representatives of the group could travel to Baghdad on supply runs and, you yeah. know, and for meetings. But for the most part, they were, um, it, it was pretty much an, an open-air prison. Which was, they that, was that Camp Liberty? I think that no, was. No, that was they, Camp Ashraf. Ashraf. That was okay. before Liberty. Okay. Yeah, gotcha. This, okay. this was really when um, they, you know, members of the opposition who fled the Iranian regime were given refuge by Saddam Hussein when he mm -hmm. was still in power. And they built a city in Camp Ashraf, which is... Mm -hmm. One of the sort of extraordinary things about the Mujahideen Khalq and the MEK, you know, people, the Iranian regime is very adept at discrediting them and their propaganda um, machine has been extremely effective. And there are some things with the MEK, you know, that lent itself to that narrative. And so it was has been what I found is that it's been a real struggle for the opposition to be taken seriously by the West and to break through that propaganda, because the biggest thing that was sort of held against them was that they were a cult, mm -hmm. you know, and they had um, and they had sort of cult like rules and, and so on, um, some of which were related to marriage and divorce and. They had these female battalions that, um, and videos of them sort of marching in formation. And, and this all lent itself to the Iranian propaganda, which was very carefully crafted. But what I found was um, very much the opposite of that. I found very sincere individuals who um, really had survived against all the odds, who had no idea what their future was going to be and who were desperate to be heard. Um, these are the people who the West embraced, as you know, right? When they came forward with the information about Iran's nuclear program and exposed how the Iranian regime was lying, then the West loved the MEK. They couldn't, they were falling over themselves to get um, this information out. It was the basis of you know many US policies and actions um, against the Iranian regime to limit their nuclear program and MEK were, um, they were, uh, 
I mean, they were at the center of that. Without the MEK, that information would not um, have been known. And so they changed history, really. But then uh, just as quickly, you know, the world turned on them, um, which is the amazing part. I mean, it shouldn't surprise people, I suppose, if you look at where we are today, because on the one hand, you have Iran as the number one sponsor, uh, state sponsor of terrorism in the world, and yet you have um, one American administration after another, you know, I mean, Obama and Biden falling over themselves, you know, to make friends with the mullahs without ever holding them accountable for murdering American citizens on the, I mean, American citizens on the battlefield in Iraq and, you know, murdering uh, U.S. allies and proxies all over the world. I mean, it's just the hypocrisy is sort of staggering and there is no more visual example of that than the MEK because these people stand, they've paid in blood for that hypocrisy, Mm -hmm. much like the Afghans. Um, you know, they have really been a casualty of their um, alliance with the West and their uh, fight for freedom. Because in Iraq, they, I mean, in Iran, they just get hunted down one by one by one. And the world stands by, says nothing and does nothing. It's, it's unbelievable. And even but, continues to try to repress them. I mean, you know, you're right. They are a, a paramilitary organization. I mean, they're, they're literally a military force that has almost like a UCMJ code instilled in it. So there are things they can and can't do once they join the organization. Um, But I'm shocked at how even today, nobody's talking about the MEK. Here we have Iran, you know, behind the proxy armies of Hezbollah and Hamas and the Israeli conflict, and nobody's talking about the resistance in Iran. That seems to me a natural way to put pressure on Iran. Well, I mean, I I actually couldn't agree with you more on that. But what is to me, more astonishing and really quite just staggering is that the, the Iranian resistance, I mean, we co- people covered the Green Revolution, you know, they covered previous campaigns. Sure, they lost interest and it didn't get as much coverage as it should have. But this time around, the protests were bigger and they were, uh, they covered almost the entire country, the length and breadth of Iran. They covered every age group. This wasn't just the young people in the university standing up. This wasn't just, you know, seasoned uh, activists and, and professionals and so on. I mean, this is literally the Iranian people have had enough. If ever there was an opportunity for the world to highlight uh, what the uh, regime in Iran is doing to its own people and, uh, you know, to put any kind of pressure on global institutions or to support the Iranian people in their fight. I mean, this was the moment. If you wanted to get rid of Iran, this was your golden opportunity. The only thing it says to me is, I mean, it says two things. One is that, um, you know, for, if I use my own example, I am so bogged down in the daily fight for survival Mm -hmm. in America Mm -hmm. today Mm -hmm. that although I uh, put a lot of information as much as I could out on my social media accounts, I didn't do nearly enough because, I mean, I I am buried in January 6th Mm -hmm. and uh, child trafficking and the border and, and, you know, a number of other things. And uh, we're just every direction we turn, something else is 
literally coming apart at the seams. We're not talking about small problems. You know, I mean, we're talking about problems on an epic scale, whether it's um, the war against uh, food, right? And farmers, how they're shrinking the food supply, um, or it's the pressure on us to move away from fossil fuels mm -hmm. um, based on some fantasy that isn't even backed up by one shred of science. In fact, the only thing the science does is prove over and over again that everything they say about so-called climate change is a lie, right? So whether you're fighting for that or you're fighting for the innocence uh, or the right of children to remain innocent and fighting against their corruption, with the this unbelievably graphic, ridiculous material that they're forcing on kids in schools, which they outrageously defend. I just, I can't believe it. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it doesn't really, it, whatever direction you turn, there's so many fires to fight. So I think the the lack of attention on the opposition in Iran is, is in part a casualty of that. Um, also, the Iranian regime is extremely skilled at exploiting any opportunity like that. You know, when you look back at the Green Revolution, the moment Michael Jackson died and the world's media turned, or I don't know if it was when he died or he went on trial, but it was mm -hmm. a huge Michael Jackson story. And the world's media pivoted and everyone's attention turned. It turned away from the protests in Iran and Iran used that to its advantage. So they're very, very skilled at that. We see that from history. Um, so that's one reason that I think people didn't hear about it. And then the, the other reason that they didn't hear about it is that the Iranian regime is really just, um, is really has allies within the United States government today. Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, and we know this. We know it because look what just happened that was just exposed um, when the FBI has now suspended um, a member of, I believe he's of the National Security Council for his um, inappropriate, they, they call it sort of inappropriate relationship with Iran, right? Which is, which we is a nice way of saying he's a spy. <laughs> yeah. He's a spy and he's got other spies um, for the regime in the government. One of them is a woman. I don't remember her name escapes me now. But mm -hmm. Todd, I don't think people really understand what that means. You know, mm -hmm. when you have people who are communicating with the authorities in Iran, who are loyal to the authorities in Iran, and have security clearances, top secret security clearances, where they have access to mm -hmm. not just information in general about US policy and the US government and so on. But these people have now have access to information about who exactly in the United States government, in the Department of Defense, in the military, has been tasked and has worked to uh, protect and defend this country against Iran. For example, who are the people that opposed them and limited their uh, activities on the Iraqi battlefield when mm -hmm. Iran was killing hundreds of American soldiers with, um, you know, with munitions that were crafted by the Iranians in Iran, deployed through their proxies to mm -hmm. murder as many Americans as possible. I mean, this means that we asked our own citizens, we the United States asked our own citizens to sign up and go on covert operations to protect this country against our enemies. And then we allowed our enemies access to their names and addresses. Yeah. And nobody Not cares. 
that's a whole nother subject we could get into, but um, the infiltration of the U.S. government. Uh, which which speaks to exactly why the U.S. government isn't up in arms um, or isn't making a noise about the protests in Iran because right. they're on the same side as the regime. They don't support the protesters. They don't support the MEK. They don't support the option. How many years did the MEK fight to get taken off the state sponsor of terrorism list? Yeah. How many years did they fight that? It was a miracle that they came off that list. One of the few people ever to do so. And that was cited as the reason by one U.S. administration after another. That was the reason that was given for why they couldn't support the MEK. Okay, well, they got that taken care of. They defied expectations and they finally got themselves removed from that list. And what happened? That was just in time for the Obama and Biden regimes to send billions of dollars in U.S. taxpayer money to keep the regime in power. And allow the regime to infiltrate Camp Ashraf and Liberty and, and kill and murder its own people. hundreds of them. Yeah. Hundreds, if not thousands. So the uh, one thing I, I struck me about the MEK is the level of participation of women and the percentage of girls who are the demonstrators. And I, you know, I sat down with some of their representatives in Paris at their headquarters you know, a couple of years ago for some time. And these girls come in and their their hands are blown off. You know, they're they're literally uh, warriors fighting the mullahs. And these are the real feminists, in my view, versus, you know, the cultural Marxist kind in the U.S. that really don't care about women in other parts of the world. What do you think of that? Well, the MEK is led by a woman. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maria Ranjavi. Mm -hmm. You know, they put a woman in charge. They had tank battalions that are all female. Mm -hmm. They have put woman, women front and center from the very beginning. But because they had rules, you know, about marriage and divorce and other things like that, mm -hmm. it allowed the Iranian regime to shift the propaganda narrative away from you know, what that said about the independence of women and um, and feminism and shifted it into this sort of, you know, shady cult like, oh, you're a journalist, don't have anything to do with the MEK. You know, you're a politician. Oh, you don't want to be associated with those weirdos, you know, yeah. and they did that very effectively. And they buried the fact that men and women, you, you know, in Camp Ashraf and later when they moved, um, you know, to the airport, um, in Baghdad, and then after they, you know, they were forced out of Ashraf, and then they were forced out of the camp at the airport, um, and forced to flee. I mean, at every step along the way, these people face such an epic struggle for survival um, with so little support that there, there really isn't time or opportunity for you to limit your ability to survive. And that has really, I mean, look at Iran's history. Iran is sort of contradictory in a sense because they've always had great universities and women have always been very well educated in Iran, mm -hmm. not all mm -hmm. the women, but you do have this extremely well-educated class of women, much more so than across the border in neighboring Afghanistan. In fact, if you go to the north of Afghanistan to Herat, which, which borders Iran, that's where you find, you know, a university and that's where you find 
women with more education. Not that it helps them today because they can't do anything with an education under the terrorist regime that the U.S. installed there. But nevertheless, Iran has always believed very firmly that Persians have a very proud history of education and uh, and culture and everything else. And so you have this contradiction where on the one hand, Iranian women are very well educated and very and sophisticated, but at the same time, they live in a society that is unbelievably oppressive. Except yeah. when it comes to punishing, except when it comes to punishing the opposition, right? Then suddenly the Iranians don't seem to care very much that women you know, are more delicate or need to be treated differently to men. Then they're just as happy to imprison and torture them as they are to the men. Yeah, many of the young protesters are women because they have no, they realize they have no future. They, they have nothing to lose. Yes. So, so it's so they go out and they know they're going to probably be captured and tortured and die, but they do it anyway. Yes, it's, and not only different. that, they do they they defy the morality, the so-called morality police, right? Mm -hmm. That forces them, you know, to wear the hijab and and everything else. They yes. defy these people openly. They make uh, videos about it. I mean, it's so moving. I think the Iranian women are amongst the bravest women in the world right yes. now i it's breathtaking i mean sometimes honestly when i see what they're doing my heart is in my mouth because i know what they're risking and i can't i mean evan prison where many of these political mm -hmm. prisoners go in in iran is just the stories of what takes place behind the walls of evan prison is just horrifying and you know I mean, I've been I'm, I've been raped myself. I was a victim mm -hmm. of gang rape in Egypt, mm -hmm. and so mm -hmm. you you can't help it. Your mind turns to that because you know this is an easy weapon of war. It's a way to intimidate and obliterate the soul of a woman without mm -hmm. you know sort of how you kill a woman without murdering her. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and so your heart breaks. My heart breaks for these women, and it's one of the enduring shames of our lifetimes taught that we have allowed this this uh, propaganda narrative of the Iranian regime to prevail. And there's, you know, there's something else about the MEK that's always uh, I've, uh, astonished me, which is how meticulous they are in keeping records. You know, I mean, they know they, they've been fighting many layers um, of propaganda over the years. And the way that they have fought back is to document absolutely everything. You know, when, when they would come down from uh, Diala and meet with me or over the, the years as we stayed in touch through all the protests, I would always, they'd tell me tales of horror and I would say, do you have pictures? Do you have video? You know, I would apologize mm -hmm. because I don't, I don't want to... Um, I'm not doubting them, but I can't help them without evidence. And that's what I used to tell them. Look, I can't help you. I can't get this story out if all I have is your word. You know, if you have this many injured, let me see them. If you have, if these things are happening, you need to document them. And they've done that, but they've documented what's happened in every single way. They have books that they have put out. They have records. You know, they have a file after file after file. They have photographs, um, they have eyewitness accounts. I mean, the thing about it is that for any journalist worth their salt, who has an open mind and an open heart, there is more than enough information there for you to start asking questions.
It doesn't mean that you have to never take anything anyone says just at face value. No one's suggesting that they're always right, you know, and that they're right about everything. But I have an endless stream now, countless videos that come from all over Iran that have documented and and revealed the breadth of the current protests. And that in itself uh, reveal is so revealing because it shows the breadth and the depth of the uh, the current powers in America to ignore and not to exploit this opportunity in Iran against a regime that really is responsible for so many deaths of its own people and people all over the world through its proxies and through its Iranian Revolutionary Guards. Laura, I know you're busy. you got to go to the airport. Thank you for uh, spending some time with me. The book is called Paying the Price, the Untold Story of the Iranian Resistance. You put a nice blurb on the back, and uh, I look forward to talking to you more about this subject down the road. Thanks again, Laura. Thank you so much, Todd. Okay, take care. Take care.